Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful that you have been our Lord and our rock and our redeemer and that you are our Lord, rock and our redeemer and that you will continue to be that. Lord, I pray as your word is heralded in its native language, heralding, preaching, announcing, Lord, I pray that it would be received and heard the way that sheep would hear the voice of a shepherd that loves them and that has laid down his life for them. So I pray that your name would be glorified and that your church would hear it and respond. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the Messiah of Israel came. He demonstrated himself to be Israel's Messiah, the one, had been pro- the one who had been prophesied for hundreds and even thousands of years. It was very clear he was their Messiah. The week before Easter, they had proclaimed him as that. They had officially recognized him as Messiah. Before the leaders of Israel, he stood trial and they asked him, Are you the Christ? He said, You've said so. Before the leaders of the Gentiles, they asked him, Are you the King of Israel? Israel's Messiah, and he said, you have said so. And then he died for the sins of his people. He loved them to the point of death, even to the point of death on the cross. He knew that it was their curse he was going to bear. He was not dying any normal death. He was bearing the wrath of God for the sin of all whom the Father loved before the foundation of the world and whom He gave to His Son. He knew this was the death He was to suffer. It was Him alone instead of them on the cross. As His ancestor David once had stood in front of Israel, between Israel and Goliath, only one man fighting that enemy instead of her. One man for the whole people. He stood in Israel's place, and all who would believe in him facing her death and damnation and the curse of God for her sin. And he died. So his messiahship, his work was not done. If David would have just fought Goliath for Israel and they both died, isn't this great? Israel's enemy is dead. And so is her messiah. That is not the role that God had for the Messiah. The Messiah's shoes that were too big even for David to fill. Oh no. The people of God's Messiah would suffer and die for her. But he would also live to enjoy the fruit of salvation. So that she would be able to enjoy salvation with him. Church, it is lovely to have someone who would die for you who would love you so much that, you, that he would die for you. That is a lovely gift to know that someone loves you that much. But then when that person is dead, you cannot enjoy that love. You have this person who loves you so much they would die for you, but then you can't even enjoy that love because it's gone. Turn to Psalm 22. Turn to Psalm 22. One of the most clear predictions and prophecies of the Messiah's death for his people. 
This is like a running commentary, a play-by-play of Jesus' crucifixion before it happens hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even comes to die. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who cried that out? Who cried that out on the cross? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast Lots. The suffering of the Messiah was very clearly predicted. But now let's look at 22, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The sufferings of the Messiah for his bride are not enough to satisfy the requirements of the Messiah and the goal and the beauty of the Messiah. No, he would live to enjoy salvation with his bride. She would not just have the joy of knowing that she had a Savior willing to die for her and that he loved her that much. No, then she would be able to enjoy that Savior as well. He would tell of, his, of, of the name of the Lord to his brothers, all united to him by faith. Isaiah 53, turn there. Isaiah 53 says very similarly. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Listen though, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is the prophecy of the Messiah, a husband who loved the church so much that he would die for her, but also that he would live to enjoy her and for her to enjoy him forever. This is why when Christ predicted his death, he almost always predicted it along with the resurrection coming with it. The Son of Man will be delivered up. The Son of Man will be crucified, but after three days he will rise. The Son of Man will die and he will be buried like Jonah in the whale. He will be three days, but he will come out of the grave. Destroy the temple. And in three days, I will build it up again. This was a combination, the death and resurrection of Christ. This was the proof that he was the Messiah. 
that he would live to be Lord. The confession of the early church was Christ is Lord, not Christ was Lord, not that the Lord loved us enough to die for us and that he was Lord, but he is Lord and he lives to enjoy his bride and for his bride to enjoy him. The Pharisees knew this, that it was a combo, death, resurrection after three days. Remember, as we were reading in Matthew's gospel on Good Friday, this is why they came to Pilate and said, we need a guard at the tomb. He, this imposter, told everybody that after three days he would rise. Let's have a guard there. And so Pilate says, you've got a guard. Seal it up as best you can, so that if there ever was a resurrection... It could not be called a false resurrection. So church, let's see the Holy Spirit-inspired testimony of what happened that Easter Sunday. Matthew 28. Turn, with your Bible, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the word of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, just like the disciples are prone to doubt, prone to worry, prone to doubt the most wonderful promises of God, so too are we. And it is good to drink the living water of the Word of God to hear Him say it again. He is risen. To strengthen our faith and hope, our confidence. 
to take our confidence off of whatever it rests on right now, to wrestle that confidence away from those things and place them on the shoulders, place that confidence on the shoulders of the one who died for us and also who rose from the dead. You may have a view of salvation that is merely just the forgiveness of sins. But your view of salvation is not the salvation that the Bible presents. Sure, it is absolutely true that the Bible presents a salvation of forgiveness of sins. Of Christ dying for his sinful bride and taking her sin. But salvation that the gospel offers is one where the bride and the groom enjoy salvation together. Where the bride not only enjoys the fact that the groom loved her enough to die for her, but where she gets to enjoy the groom because he lives forever. So today what we're going to do is we're going to drink of the gift of the resurrection. Those things which are true because of the resurrection. Those things that were accomplished because of the resurrection. And we're going to be using big words. Complicated words. Words that you don't usually use in any other setting. Justification. Sanctification. And glorification. And I want to talk to the kids right now. The young kids. Some people would say that you don't care about big words. And that big words are, are not something that you can handle. You don't like those big words. It's too difficult. But I know and that you know that that is a lie. It's absolutely not true. You know that some things are so important and so big and so detailed that you need a special word to describe them. And so, more than a few times, I have had a five-year-old boy who excitedly told me all the different names for the different kinds of his favorite dinosaurs. Well, this is this kind of dinosaur. Well, yeah, it's a very complicated name, and my, I'm not smart enough to know those things, but they know those things. Or perhaps the favorite kind of snake or shark or spider. Oh, this is this kind of shark, and it's different from this kind. Or maybe it's the name of that alien race from a certain planet in Star Wars. You know this. Or a special kind of stone found in the Marvel Universe. I'm sure more than a few kids here could tell me what substance it was that Han Solo was frozen in. Don't tell me now. So I trust that because what Christ did was so important and so fantastic and, and so detailed and so amazing that you're going to understand it's going to use and need special words that you wouldn't use in normal life. Because it's not normal what Jesus did. Nobody rises from the dead, but he rose for our justification, for our sanctification, and for our glorification. So that brings us to our first point, which is Christ was raised for our justification. Justification. Write it down if you've got a pen. Christ was raised for our justification. So the Marys come to the tomb, not expecting to see this tomb opened, and they certainly did not expect to hear that Christ had risen from the dead. But, what they, but they find that there's been an earthquake, and that earthquake has been used by the angel of God to move the stone away from the tomb. And so when they arrive, they find an angel. And not like some chubby little baby angel with wings. 
but a terrifying angel that the best they could describe it is lightning. What does an angel look like? Lightning. Sitting on top of this massive stone, and the soldiers are basically comatose. They're too terrified to move. They are like dead men. The women are also terrified at the sight of the angel, but... They belong to the Lord, and so the angel says, do not be afraid, because the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. He also tells the women to go to tell his disciples to go meet him in Galilee. He's going to go gather the disciples, gather with the disciples in Galilee, just like he told them before he died. The angel says, tell his disciples. The eleven disciples who were left but had all abandoned him every single one of those disciples had abandoned the lord jesus they scattered when christ was arrested and the most brave of all of them the one brave enough and bold enough to go walk on water with jesus for a few steps the best they could do The best performance the disciples could get was Peter, who denied Jesus three times and ended up swearing that he didn't know him, calling a curse on himself. Now, if you remember the teaching of the Gospels, Jesus had plainly said before his death that anyone who denies him before men would be denied by Jesus before the Father. Peter would have known that that meant He deserved hell. For all Peter would have thought that he earned by following Jesus and and being one of his closest friends and he deserved this spot at the top of the kingdom with Jesus, all of that would have been destroyed by Peter doing the very thing that Jesus said would certainly send you to hell. And he had done it. Peter and the other ten disciples were guilty sinners. And they deserved hell to be cursed by God the way that Jesus had been cursed by God on the cross. And so the, the women run off with this instruction, go run, tell my disciples, or Jesus' disciples from the angel. They see He says this. They run off to tell the disciples, but they bump into Jesus himself. So before they could get to the disciples to tell them what, that Jesus had risen and that Jesus was going to meet them, eventually gather them in Galilee, Jesus sort of stops them and they grab onto him and he greets them and they worship him. Jesus also tells the women not to be afraid, just like the angel did. And he gives the same message to the women to pass on to the disciples. Except, I wonder if you notice, he changed it a little. Did you notice that? The angel said, Go quickly and tell his disciples. But Jesus says, Go and tell my disciples brothers. Does that remind you of Psalm 22? I will tell of your name with my brothers. So Jesus calls sinners, men who had publicly denied him, he calls them his brothers. What about Peter's great sin? What about Jesus' words that such a man is going to be denied by Jesus and therefore rejected by God? This is why Jesus had to die, and why his resurrection from the dead was necessary to save somebody like Peter, who was a sinner, not naturally a child of God, but an enemy of God. 
because the wages of sin is death and, and all men and women die. If you wonder if somebody is a sinner, you can watch by their life to see their sin. But the thing that would seal the deal, if they were not righteous, if they did have sin before God, you would know that for certain if they died. And all men die. So all are sinners. So Jesus took the curse of sin and death for Peter's sin and all who would repent and believe in him. Now Peter would soon stand before many witnesses and he would preach the following words. We find this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death. Why could death not hold on to Jesus? Because he was the righteous one. He was the one human that had lived without sin. And so he was the one human that death could not hold on to forever. The one who was not deserving of death. Jesus had died for Peter's sin. So Christ being raised from the dead was proof that he was righteous. And if Jesus got Peter's sin, then Peter gets Jesus' righteous record. Which, and he also gets Jesus' relationship with God. And what is Jesus' relationship with God? Son. And this is why Jesus can now call the disciples, those sinners, he can now call them brothers. And if brothers with Christ, then it makes you the child of God. So God raising Jesus up from the dead was his public declaration that Jesus was the righteous one. And brothers and sisters, if your hope is to get what Jesus deserves because he got what you deserved, then the resurrection proves that you are justified. Now, what does justified mean? Justified means that we are declared righteous by God. It means that God counts us as righteous. He counts us as if we had never sinned, counts us as if we were as righteous as Jesus. He treats us that way. He counts it that way. It means he calls us brothers. It means he adopts us. It's not that we have earned our way into being treated now as brothers and now he's after, after living with God for a while as his children, finally we've sort of started acting like his children and now after a little while, okay, now I call you my children. That's not how adoption works. How does adoption work? You adopt the child. That child is legally yours. He's mine. Not based on what that child has done. But you have been declared the children of God. And Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. Romans 4 verse 23 says, 
But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That means God counts us as his children. Not because we've acted like it, but because Jesus did. Jesus' goodness was counted to us if we trust in him. So dear Christian, your sin may cause you a lot of grief. Your sins of the past may haunt you. And you may wonder, how is it that God would forgive me? How is it that God would allow me to pray to him? How can I... How can I dare call God my Father? But dear Christian, if your faith is in Christ and you've repented of your sin, then God counts Christ's righteousness to you. You are covered in His righteousness, and if He can call God Father, and then He calls you brother or sister, then you can call God Father. Because his righteousness is counted to you. Now remember, Jesus, before he died, he, he predicted that he would be the shepherd struck for the sheep. Remember this? He says, you guys will all be scattered and I will be struck. I will be punished for your sin. But, he says, but after I'm struck, I will meet you in Galilee. I will gather you together in Galilee. I'm going to gather my brothers. I'm going to gather the people I was hit for, I was punished for, I died for. I'm going to gather you. I'm going to be raised so that I can gather you. Again, it's not good enough for the church to be forgiven. The church is going to be gathered along with Christ. And so we see this scene at the end of the book of Matthew where Christ gathers his disciples in Galilee. He's gathered his brothers, those whom he has died for. And brothers and sisters, it is no coincidence, it is a sweet, sweet thing that this is where we find the Great Commission. Because it's not just the disciples that Jesus calls his brothers. It's not just the disciples whom he justified, but all who would hear the gospel, people of all tongues and tribes and nations, Anyone who hears the gospel and believes in it is justified. And that's why it's appropriate to call the Great Commission the Great Gathering. I died for those sheep. Go take the gospel around the world and gather them. They're mine. I died for them. It is not good enough for them to be apart from me because I already paid for them. Go gather them. I was raised so that they would be gathered to me. So Christ was raised for our justification. Justification, God counts us righteous. He counts us his children. Second point is Jesus Christ was raised for our sanctification. So if if, if justification is, is Christ declaring us brother or sister, counting us brother or sister, then sanctification is making us like his brothers and sisters. 
if justification is, is Jesus saying, Father, treat them like me. Then sanctification is Jesus saying, Father, make them like me. And sanctification comes after justification. Just like discipling and, and training a child to walk in the ways of your family comes after you adopt them, not before. It's not enough that Jesus took your punishment on the cross as a sinner and then he just leaves you as a sinner. He raises you to new life. It's not just the old person has died, it's you get a new life, the resurrection of Christ in you. We see this in Romans chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, 1 to 11. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore no condemnation. There's that justification there. You're not condemned. You're declared righteous. You're declared guilty. Legally, you are righteous. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus didn't just purchase forgiveness for you. It wasn't that he just felt sorry for you for being treated as an enemy of God. He didn't want you to be an enemy of God. He wants you to enjoy the relationship with God that he deserves, which is this loving relationship, father to son. And he was raised from the dead so that you could be sanctified. Now, what does sanctified mean? Well, sanctified means made holy. It might have been better to call it holified, but that sounds a little weird. So it means that being a child of God, being justified, being declared and adopted as a child of God, you're now, bit by bit, transformed into a person who loves and obeys God, who now fights against sin and who wants to please God. The way that a, a father would would disciple or discipline or raise a child, teaching them, transforming them. And this is something you couldn't do on your own. You were dead in sin, dead to God. You didn't love Him. Your heart hated Him. 
But Christ being raised from the dead, he gives us his spirit so that not only are we just forgiven, we're also transformed bit by bit. And so, dear brothers and sisters, do not, do not live any longer in the dead ways of an enemy of God. For Christ died for your sin, and he was raised for your sanctification. You've been raised to a new life. So don't embrace the life and actions and thoughts and desires of an enemy. Whenever you see those or feel those, or those are pointed out by the word of God or by a, a brother or sister in Christ, run from those. I'm not dead any longer. I'm alive in Christ. He, raised, he was raised from the dead, and I too was raised with him. So you may feel so overwhelmed by your sin. The feeling and powerful pull of sin to tempt you to sin. And you feel maybe like there's no hope in resisting temptation because you're too weak. Well, Christian, you are too weak. But Christ is strong. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Why? So that you might live righteously. You might live as a child of God. Yes, you are declared as a child of God. You are justified, but you are also able to live as a child of God. He was raised for your sanctification, your transformation. He's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters, and so he transforms you into that life that he purchased for you. That brings us to our third point, which is, Christ was raised for our glorification. Christ was raised for our glorification. What have you ever wondered as you're listening to this account in Matthew's gospel and in Matthew 28? I wonder if you ever wondered, why did that stone need to be rolled away from the tomb? Jesus is God. Couldn't he just like teleport himself out of there? Why was that stone physically rolled away from the tomb? And when why when the when the when the when the Marys when the Marys got to the tomb why is it that the the angel invited them to come in and take a look at it I want you to see this grave I want you to see it I want you to see it's physically empty there is no body left in there Why is it that when the Marys run into Jesus on the way to telling the disciples why is it that when they see him they grab him by the feet physical, real feet? Why is it that when Jesus visits with his disciples later on, why is it that he eats a meal with them? Why is it that, when he, why is it that he instructs Thomas to feel his wounds, his physical wounds of a physical body? And that was to show that he didn't just, he wasn't just raised from the dead spiritually. It wasn't just some soul resurrection it was the resurrection of his body. He didn't just rise as a spirit or a soul or a ghost, but he rose as a man, as a human. See, his, his goal, his mission was not just to redeem our souls, but to redeem us in whole, as, as whole people. And God made us body and soul. 
And now we struggle with sin. While we're still in this body, we struggle with sin. Isn't it true? We struggle with temptations. And one day we will no longer struggle with sin. In fact, the moment you die, your soul goes to be with the Lord. Your body in the grave, but your soul with the Lord. And in that moment, you're no longer wrestling with sin. No longer struggling with love of sin and love of God, fighting back and forth between those things. But it's not, that's, that's not enough. Because that would be Christ only saving part of us. Only glorifying part of us. It's not enough for a person to be forgiven. This was not Christ's only mission. His mission was to glorify His bride. And what does glorification mean? It means to be made perfectly like Christ. To finish sanctification. To restore us in whole exactly as we were made to be. This year, dear church, we buried our brother Bruce Chabot. We buried our dear sister Carol Forbes. We buried our dear brother Alf Beavis. We put those lifeless bodies into the earth. We wept at their gravesides. We laid their bodies to rest and we grieved. Even as we rejoiced that their souls were with the Lord in the presence of the God who loved them and Messiah who gave himself up for them. We know that right now, at this very moment, they are in the presence of the Lord and they are delighting in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And they are thrilled with the love of the Father that only Jesus deserves. They were welcomed into heaven the way that Christ deserved to be welcomed because Christ was treated as an enemy the way they deserved to be treated. And while they were still in this life, while they were still in their bodies, they were weak and sinful. They were not finished being sanctified. They still had sin that they struggled with. They still had doubts and weak faith. Sinful thoughts and desires still plagued them and they were wrestling with these things even to the end of their lives. But the moment they stood before Christ, they were transformed. Their souls were glorified, made perfect. They were made to be as they had been declared to be as righteous. But their bodies, dear church, are still in the ground. Death still looks like it has a victory over them. Their bodies are seeing corruption. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead for our glorification, not just the glorification of our souls, but also of our bodies. Because God didn't create us as bodiless souls. And our bodies are not bad. This is part of God's good creation. This is part of how He made us. He gave us bodies perfectly fit to worship Him and glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. All of your senses, touch, taste, smell, sound, sight, 
all of these things in your body, these were all given by God to you so that you would perfectly enjoy Him. That you would enjoy who He is and worship Him. Now, we, we all know what it's like to get a gift from somebody who loves you. Right? So you, you get a gift and you're unwrapping it and you see it's the exact thing you wanted. And, and you've seen this when people... They can't even finish unwrapping the gift because they're overwhelmed with appreciation for the person who gave them that gift. So they leave the gift there and then they embrace the one who gave them that gift. And so the gift is actually there for them to enjoy the giver of the gifts. Now we also know people who get a gift from somebody that loves them and they open it and they're so overwhelmed by the gift they don't care about the giver. Your body was designed perfectly tuned when God made humans so that you would be a creature who would enjoy God and glorify Him. That's how you were designed. So God created the world. He created the world as this theater for you to be on, for Him to enjoy His goodness and His love and His holiness and His righteousness, for you to worship Him and glorify Him and enjoy Him. And so Christ's mission as the Messiah was not just to redeem your soul, but to destroy death for your body as well. And Christ, the Bible says, is the head of the church, his body, which means the head came out of the grave, so too will the body because they are united. Christ is the first fruits, it says, the first bit of the harvest off of the field, and you can examine that. What's it like? And you know the rest of the harvest is guaranteed to be like that. What happened to Christ is guaranteed to happen for his bride, so his body had to be risen from the dead because he had promised, he had sworn to the Father that he would glorify the bride, that she too again would walk in the land of the living to enjoy her Savior who loved her enough to give up his life for her. So brothers and sisters, if your hope is in Christ, your eternal hope is not heaven. It's earth. Where heaven and earth are united and the earth is transformed in all the stains of sin, all of the death, all of the things, all the corruptions that sin sin brought into it, all of it's just forbidden and washed off the earth, and then Christ comes, God comes to dwell with his people on earth. Christ in his body, the church in their bodies, to walk this earth, and this time to glorify him in their bodies and enjoy him forever. Christ was raised for your glorification. Not only was he raised to declare you a forgiven son or daughter, not only was he raised to transform you into a forgiven son or daughter, but he was raised to finish that and complete it. He was raised for your glorification. So we can imagine and delight in the gift of having glorified flesh, glorified bodies, perfectly tuned to enjoy our Creator. 
sight, taste, sound. And we can do this in a renewed world that's been purged of all the things that sin has stained it with, pain and sorrow and sickness and fear and loneliness and death. And so we do not need to be like the world, trying to squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of a corrupted and fallen world. You know, eat, drink, and be be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's get as much of pleasure as we can get out of this corrupted world where thieves break in and steal and where moth and rust consume and where shifting Manitoba soil breaks things and where jobs can be lost and where reputations ruined and governments topple and hackers steal information. And doctors' visits can have terrifying news. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is not our last time on this earth because Christ was raised for our glorification. So do not walk as the world walks, as though this is all that there is and as if Christ didn't raise from the dead. Their end is destruction, so do not walk with them. The resurrection of Christ gives us a much greater joy than what we could squeeze out of this world right now. Now we can live in this world right now with a mixture of sorrow and joy. Walking through sorrows as a child of God, knowing that that we still have that joy. I am suffering and I am sorrowful. I don't have to pretend I'm happy all the time. I can be sorrowful and enjoy that I am walking through sorrow as a child of God. He has declared me that. But also have confidence that Christ was raised for our glorification. Dear Christians, he promised his 11 disciples that once he had been punished for the sin of the scattered sheep, he would rise from the dead and go before them and then gather them. He would gather them as their brother because he had cleansed them of their sin, declaring that they were now God's children. He was covered with their robes of wickedness so they could be covered with his robe of righteousness. He would gather them as his brothers. And this is what has happened to you. If you've heard the gospel, and if you've repented of that old life and run to Christ and trusted in his death and resurrection, you've been gathered as a forgiven daughter or son. You've been justified. But there will be a day which is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection when he will come again to punish all who do not believe in him, but will gather his church with glorified bodies to enjoy the seat at the family table of God, the seat that he deserves. For as long as he lives and as long as he deserves it, which is forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a full salvation that you gave us. Lord, one that does not reject the body, that does not reject this earth, Lord, but one has redeemed them. We confess that Christ not just was Lord, but that he is Lord. Lord, we confess that there is one man. Christ is a man right now. He is a human seated on the throne 
right next to you, at the right hand of glory, Lord. He is our advocate as a risen man in a body who has redeemed his bride. And he has redeemed not just her soul, but also her bodies. And Lord, would you give us that vision of the new heavens and earth, the glorification of our souls and our bodies, Lord, would you make that something that we are always thinking about so that we would not live as if this world was all that we had? Putting our hope and trust in that and so having to sin to get more pleasure out of it. Lord, I pray that you would transform us bit by bit as we fall into sin. Call us back, Lord, by your word and spirit and our church. Hold on to us. Sanctify us until the day that Christ comes back for his bride and, oh, Lord, when he glorifies us. Lord, let us be found waiting for him when he returns to judge the living and the dead, and to raise us up with bodies incorruptible, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.